This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before cityscapes dominated our skylines, before lions roamed the savannas and killer whales scoured the oceans, before a dinosaur ever took its first breath, our planet was on fire. And before fire, Earth was just specks of matter left over from the creation of the sun. It was then, as it is now, inconsequential to the vast universe beyond. Before the universe... There was nothing. Our modern understanding of planet Earth is derived from thousands of years of discovery. Countless scientists, philosophers, and explorers have spent their lives trying to make sense of it. Some of their ideas, like the Big Bang Theory, only appeared recently, less than a century ago. Others, like the theory that Earth is a sphere, took root more than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece. Likely at a monastery-like commune in Croton, now a part of Italy, steps from the Mediterranean Sea, some of the greatest minds that have ever lived came together to discuss our universe. And one of those minds, a man named Pythagoras, had a hunch that our Earth might be shaped like a sphere. Today, we take that hunch as a given. Saying the Earth is round is like saying the sky is blue or the grass is green. But what if the Greeks were wrong? What if everything you've been taught about our planet is a lie? After all, have you seen our Earth from space? If you stare out the window right now, does the horizon really look like it's bending at its edges? What do your senses tell you? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. 
And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Flat Earth. An overwhelming majority of people believe that the Earth is a sphere. Still, not everyone is convinced. A slow-growing community calling themselves Flat Earthers are convinced that the Earth is flat. But the shape of our planet is just the beginning of their beliefs. Flat Earthers question many of the things most of us accept as a given, including the existence of trees. This week, we'll be covering the official story behind how and why, since almost 500 BCE, humans have believed the Earth is a sphere. On next week, we'll look into some alternative theories proposed by these skeptics about what they believe our Earth looks like and why they believe that NASA is lying to us. We should maybe begin our official story with the fact that it's not entirely clear when the belief that the Earth is a sphere became the majority opinion. We can only go by what's been documented, and for most of history, the ones who have been documenting have been well-educated, wealthy, literate, and largely European. Which means, for most of history, the ones documenting were the minority. It's impossible to pinpoint when the spherical Earth theory transcended the smaller elite minority and was adopted by a majority of humans around the world. But we do know the last famous story where the concept of a flat Earth played a major role. It goes as follows. In 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail for Asia on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He was determined to discover new trade routes for Spain and to prove to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella that the earth was round. He had struggled to get funding because the king and queen weren't convinced he wouldn't fall off the flat face of the earth. But Columbus managed to convince the crown, although he arrived in the Americas, not India. Today, the voyage remains one of the most famous mishaps in American history. That version of the story, however, is not entirely true. Columbus did mistakenly land in the Americas and not India. He was looking for new trade routes, but Columbus his peers, and the king and queen of Spain all knew full well that the earth was a globe. His troubles in his travel and in getting funding only had to do with doubt about the earth's circumference. 
Well, the myth that Columbus set out to prove the Earth was round was only popularized in Columbus's biography, which was written in 1828 by Washington Irving. Irving's more popular stories include Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Given Irving's propensity for fiction, it might not come as a surprise that he added some less-than-truths to Columbus's biography to make it more interesting to his readers. But those lies seeped into popular culture and remain a part of our collective consciousness. So while we may never know definitively when the majority of humans started to believe the Earth was a sphere, it's important to first rewrite some of our own historical misconceptions regarding the alternative. The theory that the Earth is a sphere actually predates Christopher Columbus by roughly 2,000 years, likely first proposed by Pythagoras around 500 BCE. Well, nobody is certain how or why Pythagoras drew his conclusion, but historians assume it had to do with his belief that a sphere was the perfect shape. Well, given that Pythagoras also believed that the Earth occupied the center of the universe, it would only make sense. That's not exactly a convincing argument, but Plato continued Pythagoras' teachings all the same. It wasn't until Aristotle came along that evidence of Earth's curvature was introduced. It happened when Aristotle turned his attention to the stars. He observed that as he traveled, stars and constellations move higher or lower in the night sky, depending upon whether he was traveling north or south. He concluded that the only way this would be possible would be if the Earth were round. He also noted that the shadows cast by the Earth on the moon were round, and that objects tended to move, as he described, to the center of the Earth. He attributed both to Earth's spherical nature. This inclination would later be named gravity by Isaac Newton. Around 200 BCE, a philosopher, mathematician, and astronomer named Eratosthenes conducted an experiment. Eratosthenes received word that in the city of Syene, some 700 miles away, shadows disappeared on the summer solstice at noon. Well, the news intrigued him. To test if the same might be true in his hometown of Alexandria, Eratosthenes ran a simple experiment. He dug a stick in the earth and waited for noon to arrive. He found that, unlike in Syene, shadows didn't quite disappear in Alexandria. The shadow from his stick still measured about seven degrees at noon. Under the assumption that all of the sun's rays hit Earth at the same angle, he concluded that, to account for the difference in the shadow's angles, the surface of the Earth must be curved. Eratosthenes wasn't the first to suggest that the Earth was a sphere, but he was one of the first to provide concrete evidence. Using only a shadow and the distance between Syene and Alexandria, Eratosthenes was able to conclude that Earth was curved and calculate its circumference. His calculations were within 30 kilometers of what contemporary satellites have since measured. After Eratosthenes, Greek scholars like Strabo and Claudius Ptolemy wrote of their observations while sailing. As a ship would approach land, any mountains that would appear seemed to rise from the horizon. The only explanation for such a phenomenon, they explained, was that the Earth was curved. 
Given these findings, Strabo even suggested that man must have had an idea of the curved nature of Earth since the inception of sailing. He cited lines from Homer's Odyssey as proof, which historians suggest was written as early as the 8th century BCE. The teachings of Aristotle, Eratosthenes, and other Greeks carried onward in time. The idea that the Earth was a sphere permeated societies and cultures across Europe and Asia for years, and due to their influence, it wasn't long before it became a commonly held belief worldwide, at least in academic circles. And through the centuries after the Greeks, the theory that Earth was a sphere persisted. It even managed to survive through the dark ages of Western Europe. As time went on, more and more scholars and scientists from cultures across the world presented evidence supporting the claim that the Earth was a sphere. Perhaps the most definitive was in 1519, when Ferdinand Magellan set out on a journey to circumnavigate the globe. Ferdinand Magellan was born in Portugal around 1480, during a great rivalry between Spain and Portugal. The two countries were in a race to dominate the spice trade, which, in turn, would mean dominating the world's economy. Cinnamon, cardamom, nutmeg, and clove were all among the most valuable assets on Earth. Clove was even thought to have the power to lower fevers and improve vision and virility. Spices were currency, symbols of luxury. Luckily for Magellan, he came from a family of minor nobility, and because of his family's status, at 14, he began serving as a page to the queen consort of Portugal, Eleonora Viziu. During his service, Magellan became enchanted by the stories that sea explorers brought back to the queen, tales of battle, riches, and glory. He longed to one day join their ranks. After years of dutiful service to the crown, Magellan finally got his chance to sail at age 25. He joined a fleet of 22 ships on a voyage to India. Well, by his mid-30s, Magellan was a seasoned sailor with enormous ambition, who obsessively studied maps and charts. He was looking for a way into history, a way to achieve greatness. And he found it a brand new trade route to the Spice Islands in Indonesia by sailing westward around the globe. It was a voyage that nobody had ever attempted before, but Magellan was certain of its success. And if Portugal cemented the trade route as its own, it would give the kingdom a leg up in its rivalry with Spain. Surely the crown would be willing to fund it. Magellan brought his plan to King Manuel of Portugal. His dreams came crashing down, however, when King Manuel rejected his proposal, not once, but on three different occasions. Portugal already controlled the eastern routes around Asia under a 1494 treaty, the Treaty of Tordesillas. Well, there was no need to take the risk on a second route. Infuriated and persistent, Magellan abandoned his home and relocated to Spain in 1517. If Portugal wouldn't fund his voyage, maybe their biggest rival would. After spending roughly a year learning the language and working his way up in the ranks, Magellan tripped into a great deal of progress. He met and married Maria Caldera Beatriz Barbosa, 
The Barbosas were a prominent Spanish family that held a considerable amount of political and social sway. Through their connections, Magellan was able to secure a meeting with the King of Spain. King Charles I was only 18 at the time, but interestingly enough, he happened to be the grandson of the king and queen who had funded Christopher Columbus's voyage in 1492. Well, this likely gave Magellan some confidence as he walked into court, ready to give his familiar plea. The confidence was warranted. King Charles agreed to fund Magellan's voyage west. If the western trade route worked, his investment could pay off in dividends. So, on August 10th, 1519, Magellan's fleet finally set sail for the Spice Islands. It consisted of five ships, 270 men, and inventory for two years of travel. The journey to reach the Spice Islands wouldn't be easy. Magellan had drastically underestimated the distance and the difficulty. It would take not two, but three years to complete. Three years filled with devastating battles, mutiny, and death. They didn't know it then, but only 18 of the men and one ship would return from their trip. And Magellan wouldn't be one of them. When we come back, Magellan reaches the Philippines on the opposite side of the world, or as most people put it, the globe. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On August 10th, 1519, Ferdinand Magellan's fleet set sail for the Spice Islands, determined to establish a westward trading route to the other side of the globe. The journey was treacherous and filled with death. But it was also marked by some major successes. Magellan discovered a waterway through the Americas connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. It now bears his name, the Strait of Magellan. Finally, on March 16, 1521, Magellan reached the islands of the Philippines. His long, treacherous journey west had finally brought him to the east, 
to the other side of the world. But the toils didn't end when Magellan arrived in the Philippines. He befriended the locals in Cebu, and in doing so, he tripped into their war. The people of Cebu were in conflict with the neighboring island of Mactan and asked Magellan if he would help. Despite his men begging him not to, Magellan agreed. He thought that his soldiers, with their superior weapons, would easily cut through the ranks of the Mactanese. He was so certain, in fact, that he put himself on the front line. On April 27, 1521, Magellan charged into battle. He was a skilled fighter, but he carried injuries and limbs from past wars. Though he fought bravely against the natives of Mactan, he was struck by a poison arrow. The poison entered his bloodstream, and he died before nightfall. A single ship with 18 of the original sailors would eventually return to Spain, bringing with it a bounty of spices and riches. But Magellan would not return home alive. Not only did he not return home alive, but the trade route that Magellan discovered ended up being of little use. It was far too long, costly, and treacherous. Magellan's death also meant that he didn't actually circumnavigate the globe, not in one trip at least. His fleet, however, did, along with 18 of his men. And since his voyage, it has been done by others too. Francis Drake in 1577 and Robert Fitzroy, Darwin's captain on the Beagle, between 1826 and 1836. In 2017, Francois Gabar set the record for the fastest single-handed maritime circumnavigation of our planet, 42 days, 16 hours, and 40 minutes. And in 2019, airlines essentially circumnavigate the globe daily. Well, if it is a globe, even by the time that Magellan's crew returned to Spain in 1522, the evidence was circumstantial and anecdotal. Well, nobody had photographs or any hard evidence to say conclusively that the Earth was a sphere. And if you think of the Earth as a flat circle, it's still possible to travel to Asia from Spain by going either east or west. It would just mean looping around and making a circle in either direction. But it would be impossible to travel by staying true to one direction. You would have to eventually head north or south. And though Magellan and his peers might have been operating without photographic evidence, we certainly aren't anymore. Well, we've all seen photographs of the Earth's shape. When President Dwight Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act in 1958, establishing NASA as a presence in the United States, photographic evidence became abundant. Only eight years after President John F. Kennedy made it a national goal, the United States sent men to the moon. On July 16, 1969, crowds gathered in Cape Canaveral, Florida, to watch as astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins were shot into space. Millions more were watching along at home. It was Apollo 11, the first ever manned mission to the moon. After roughly 240,000 miles and 80 hours of traveling, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins became the first humans to land on that craggy, distant rock. 
two hours after that, Neil Armstrong and Aldrin became the first to walk on its surface. Their journey was documented in color film that included footage of the Earth through Apollo 11's window, meaning they had more than enough perspective to judge the shape of our planet. The documentation of the trip was widely followed by Americans on Earth and included sound bites, photographs, and videos showing both the Earth and its moon as round orbs. It remains to this day a defining moment for American culture. America had stepped foot on the moon. In the midst of the Cold War, the moon landing ignited a sense of national pride, a feeling of achievement for Americans everywhere. But that might have been the point. That's exactly what they wanted you to feel. We should mention that there are many people out there who believe that we've never been to the moon. In fact, we devoted two episodes to discussing those theories. And there's a crucial link between believing the United States faked the moon landing and flat Earth theory. Both hinge on the fact that NASA is lying to us. We'll get to that later. For now, the official story is that NASA's Apollo 11 mission successfully landed a man on the moon. And, in doing so, the astronauts were able to document the shape of our planet from space. Apollo 11 wasn't the only mission to bring back evidence, though. There were 14 Apollo missions in total. Not all of them sent men to the moon, but all of them brought back revelations of their own, not the least of which were the discoveries of Apollo 17. Apollo 17 was comprised of astronauts Eugene Cernan, Harrison Schmidt, and Ronald Evans. The goal was to carry out scientific investigation of both the surface and orbit of the moon. To this day, the Apollo 17 mission remains one of the most significant journeys to space. It provided first-hand accounts of the experience of being in space, in addition to the official NASA evidence that was released to the public. The blue marble photograph was taken on the astronauts' way to the moon from a window of the ship. The perspective of the image heavily features the continent of Africa. At the top of the photo is the Mediterranean Sea, and at the bottom is Antarctica, though Antarctica is largely covered in clouds in the photo. Missing from the photograph entirely are the Americas and most of Asia both of which, it's commonly assumed, are hidden by the natural curves of the Earth. The photo tells the same story as all of the ones before it. The Earth is a sphere. And as NASA's capabilities have grown and more satellites have gone to space, more and more evidence has poured in to support that fact. The blue marble photo has inspired a series of photographs that include satellite images from 2001, 2002, 2005, and 2012. The photographs from 2012, called the blue marble 2012 and the black marble 2012, even show the Earth during the day and at night. Well, that's before we even mention the video evidence we have of our Earth's shape. In 2015, the Deep Space Climate Observatory satellite was able to capture video footage of our moon orbiting the Earth. Not just one sphere, but two of them documented, in orbit with each other. 
One year after that, NASA was able to record an entire year of the Earth's rotation from its sunlit side. The footage was recorded from a satellite located one million miles away from Earth's surface. And besides just Earth, there are also images that show the spherical nature of every other planet in our solar system. Which is all to say that NASA's research now spans more than 60 years, and it's still continuing. As it does, their technology is only becoming more advanced. But as their technology advances, so does the technology that allows us to manipulate photographs and pass them off as real. Would it be possible for NASA to forge all of its evidence that the Earth is a sphere? The short answer is yes. Coming up, we'll delve into the art of photographic manipulation, which has been around since, well, long before NASA was ever founded. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And now back to the story. For thousands of years, humans have believed that the Earth is a sphere. For most of that time, the evidence was largely theoretical and anecdotal, until NASA came around in the later half of the 20th century and provided photographic and video proof. So could NASA have tampered with the evidence to tell a story they wanted us to believe? Well, let's start with the timeline. NASA was established in 1958, more than 100 years after Joseph Nisiphor Nieps created the earliest known surviving photograph of nature. The process was created in 1825 and was known as heliography. Though it's unclear who was the first person to manipulate a photograph and when they managed to do it, we do know that it happened not long after 1825. Due to the fact that early photographs resembled what we might refer to as etchings, they could easily be manipulated by adding elements by hand. But perhaps one of the most recognizable early examples of photo manipulation came in the early 1860s. A photograph of Abraham Lincoln's face and John C. Calhoun's were combined to create a single portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Why resort to such measures? Well, allegedly, it was due to rumors surrounding Lincoln's less than favorable looks. There weren't any photographs of Lincoln that were considered stately enough, so Lincoln and his advisors turned to photographer Matthew Brady. Brady was able to superimpose Abraham Lincoln's head on the body of a rather heroic-looking John C. Calhoun. To this day, the portrait remains one of the most popular images of Abraham Lincoln in existence. It even served as the basis for what we now see on our $5 bill. And it goes to show that even images you think you know might not be all they appear to be. At the same time as that image of Lincoln was being created, the manipulation of photographs was being used to trick the public in other ways. 
images might be superimposed onto others to suggest the existence of spirits or cropped to reveal animals or humans performing feats of incredible strength. These images were most often created to deceive and to try and make a buck. To the public, images of ghosts and unnatural feats were shocking. As far as they were concerned, a photograph didn't have the ability to lie. Of course, we've come to understand otherwise. In World War II, we know that the United States manipulated photographs of war to make the contents appear more dramatic. Exploding cannonballs were added to photographs of men in the trenches. Joseph Stalin removed his enemies from photographs. He wanted to rewrite history as he saw fit. He famously airbrushed contemporaries like Leon Trotsky out of photographs of his speeches. The same technique would later be adopted by Adolf Hitler. In 1982, National Geographic was caught photoshopping the Great Pyramids closer together. They said it was so that the image could be well-composed and fit inside their classic yellow border. The controversy sparked national headlines and a conversation about journalistic integrity and the public's right to know the truth. Similarly, in June 1994, Time magazine published O.J. Simpson's mugshot on its cover. His face was manipulated to appear darker, more sullen, less clean-shaven. Many believed it made him appear more guilty. While Time claimed that the manipulation had nothing to do with O.J.'s alleged innocence or guilt, but when contrasted with the same unmanipulated photo that appeared on the cover of Newsweek, it's a hard story to believe. And whether Time intended it or not, the image played a massive role in public opinion. Again in 1994, a controversy arose when the University of Wisconsin at Madison photoshopped black students into their materials. They wanted to appear more diverse, but the media lashed out against the false advertising. In 2004, George Bush's campaign added more U.S. military troops to one of their rallies and edited out Bush's podium. His campaign later apologized and published the original photo. You may think to yourself, what's the harm in squeezing two pyramids together to fit more symmetrically in a frame? Who cares if Bush's campaign added a few more troops to a single photograph? What harm are they doing, really? But the danger is not in the photographs themselves. The danger is representing fiction as fact without any indication. If the people in power can control what we believe is real, they control our reality. And if they control our reality, what else can they control? In the wake of 9-11, when a fake photograph appears of a man standing on the World Trade Center with a plane flying towards him, what are we supposed to do? Do we believe? Do we reject? Do we click? As we're inundated with more and more content, the motivation for creators to lie in order to stand out only increases. But how far is too far? What are the ethics and implications of Photoshop in the wrong hands? Americans are still learning. How to maintain freedom of speech while upholding our responsibility to the truth is still being debated in the highest courts of our country today. 
But luckily, humans have become better equipped at discerning fact from fiction. It has become a necessity. Whether it's airbrushed models, clickbait imagery, or internet memes, the average human with an internet connection is confronted with doctored and fake photographs nearly every day of their lives. While that's true, at the same time as our ability to recognize manipulation improves, the technology used to deceive is improving as well. A new kind of space race, human versus machine. There is certainly a precedent of global leaders tampering with photographs to alter belief systems. But whoever is making NASA's photographs would have to be wildly skilled for those manipulations to go so unnoticed by so many. As much as there is a precedent for practicing photographic manipulation, well, there's a precedent for getting caught, too. And the question still remains, why? Why would they want to convince us that the Earth is a sphere when it's not? I think it's time to visit the origin of the Flat Earth movement itself to get a better understanding of who Flat Earthers are and where they come from. It's a movement whose origins are much more modern than you might think. In 1838, Samuel Burley Robotham conducted an experiment known as the Bedford Level Experiment to test if the Earth was indeed a sphere. Robotham watched a boat travel for six miles down the old Bedford River with a telescope. When it remained in his view the entire time, without dipping below the horizon, he decided the Earth must be flat. But just to be sure, Robotham repeated this experiment several more times. Each time, he drew the same results. Robotham's book, Zetetic Astronomy, Earth Not a Globe, has become the fundamental text of the Universal Zetetic Society and all flat earthers since. Today, even celebrities are becoming believers. Household names like Tila Tequila, B.O.B., and Kyrie Irving have come out as so-called flat earthers, and the movement doesn't seem to be slowing down. So, what do they actually believe. The modern flat earth movement can be broken down into four distinct, if overlapping, theories. The first is that the earth is flat and Antarctica is a giant ice wall that holds all of its contents inside. The sky above the earth is a dome, similar to a planetarium, and the sun and moon rotate on an axis around the top of the dome, giving us the simulation of day and night. The second theory is that NASA is covering up the truth about the nature of the Earth in order to use our tax dollars, not on space research, but on secretive and nefarious projects. The third is one you've probably heard before. The Earth is not just another planet. It sits at the center of our solar system and was created by something much, much bigger than humans. The Big Bang? It never happened. The fourth is that gravity, as we know it, doesn't exist. Instead, the Earth is constantly moving upward, being pushed by a dark energy that provides acceleration and causes the sensation we refer to as gravity. Believers of this theory also argue that trees don't exist. Well, some of them do, but we'll talk about that next time.
thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and a part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Connor Sampson and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.